Welcome back to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, as always. And I'm Luke Savage. Hey, guys. Good to be back. One of our longer breaks. Yeah. Uh, almost, yeah. Almost two and a half weeks, three weeks. Something like that. I guess, you know, they've been kind of getting longer since we started doing, uh, you know, roughly two-week breaks between the episodes, but it does give us time to uh, watch good movies occasionally. Which... Well, you know, a great poet once said that life is what happens when you're busy making other plans, <laughs> and I think we can see that with us. <laughs> and, you know, this week we actually did watch a good movie for the podcast, which... Uh, we were a little dissuaded from doing after uh, the uh, inexplicable failure of the Great Dictator episode to become a viral sensation. But, you know, this week uh, we did a good movie and uh, I'm hopeful we can have a good discussion about it. But before we get to that, this is primarily a Michael Moore themed podcast. Yeah, it's been said, um, you know, there's the famous aphorism that all Western politics and culture is in some respect a footnote to Michael Moore. Yeah, it was, uh, it was only a matter of time before we brought the patron saint of Michael and us back into the forefront. So, you know, we've been wanting to do this for a few weeks and uh, because we've been putting off, uh, there has accrued quite a body uh, of fresh Michael Moore content. We're in a golden age of Michael Moore. Well, Michael Moore, you'll recall, uh, I I don't even want to give it credibility but he, he, he directed roger and me yeah fahrenheit 9 well, yeah. perhaps you've heard of, of them. course but he accurately <laughs> predicted the outcome of the election well t- and, technically. Then, and then he unpredicted it but you know it's like if you throw enough shit at the wall eventually some of it will stick <laughs> but yes he did accurately predict the election at one point and that's led to you know him trying to uh, revitalize his brand a little bit so there have been in the last few weeks announcements of three big Michael Moore Trump era projects. Uh, First of all, coming to Broadway is his one-man show, Michael Moore, The Terms of My Surrender, which uh, the poster bears the tagline, Can a Broadway show bring down a sitting president? Uh, I have some thoughts on on that question. Well, it opens August 10th and it'll run for 12 weeks. According uh, to the article I read in The Hollywood Reporter, each 90-minute show will be unique, uh, with surprise guest stars and Moore's comments responding to news, the news of the day. Guest one, Keith Olbermann. Okay. Guest two, David Frum. I have a prediction about this Broadway show <laughs> that every uh, show will have a, a balcony or a seat in the front row reserved for an out-of-work Flint auto worker, and <laughs> they will always be sat next to some so, some celebrity. So the next day you're going to see pictures of like an out of work auto worker sitting next to like Robert De Niro or someone. And like, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's so I see I spent so many weeks on this podcast being immersed in Michael Moore that everything he does is so grindingly predictable to me at this point. I think I think uh, every night we'll have it'll be like a variation of the same bit involving a different kind of conservative pundit who's anti-Trump. Mm-hmm. And then there'll be a whole kind of like we're making common cause like you and I may have disagreements, but you know, Mm -hmm. something like that. I can't wait. So if that wasn't enough, uh, TNT greenlit a new Michael Moore TV show, Michael Moore live from the apocalypse, which is eyeing a late fall premiere. It's reminiscent of TV nation and the awful truth and all your favorites. And in a statement, Michael Moore said, Live from the apocalypse will be a raucous gathering place for millions of our fellow citizens in desperate need for a break from the screaming pundits and the purveyors of alternative facts. Our show will be dangerous and relentless, and it will be the destination for those who want to know what's really going on and what they might be able to do about it. But folks, these two things aren't even the most exciting news because I I think maybe even the same day that the TV show was announced, uh, we got word of a brand new Michael Moore feature film, Fahrenheit 11.9. I I swear to God. I already knew that that was the title, but just hearing it out loud. I'm not making that because November 9th was the day that Trump was elected. The Weinsteins have picked up uh, distribution for Fahrenheit eleven nine to be released this holiday season. So just like um, its predecessor cost George W. Bush the 2004 election, Mr. Trump in, uh, in 2020, watch out. So in a statement accompanying the announcement of this film, Moore said, No matter what you throw at him, it hasn't worked. No matter what is revealed, he remains standing. Facts, reality, brains cannot defeat him. Even when he commits a self-inflicted wound, he gets up the next morning and keeps going and tweeting. That all ends with this movie. Big words. Okay, I mean, putting aside the fact that I think Moore really ought to 
like show a little humility. Yeah. Uh, the first thing I think about when I hear this flurry of news is actually a weird feeling of nostalgia for, you know, a time when Michael Moore actually did seem in the mid 2000s like this kind of like dangerous figure, you know, somebody somebody who could potentially affect the outcome of an election. And also it makes me nostalgic for a time like in the late 90s when he was still this almost alternative force. Right. You know, right. like when he was doing TV Nation or the Yeah, Awful and campaigning Truth. for Ralph Nader and stuff. Yeah, and yeah. he was kind of like something like TV Nation and the Awful Truth. Like they were unlike anything that was on TV at the time. I mean, they're, you know, they're hardly great works or anything, but nobody was doing shows where stuff that was that left wing on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is probably a rhetorical question, but is it possible for Michael Moore to regain some of that, some of that magic? And if not, why not? Yeah, I mean, it's an, it is an interesting question. I, I mean, I would say just reflexively, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the evidence being awful, uh, Michael Moore and Trumpland film, mm-hmm. so-called, which just was... I mean, it was basically obsequious Democratic Party agitprop. It it was it was less edgy than Slacker Uprising, which is pretty hard to yeah. to pull off. Um, there did come a point when he stopped being a satirist and became a propagandist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I to me, like he strikes me as somebody. I mean, just based on you know his last film and then and Where to Invade next before that, you know, I think he's kind of out of ideas. Mm-hmm. I mean, his films were always. Um, you know, piece together bits of stock footage and kind of ironically counterposed music and things like that. And, you know, every so often they worked or certain ideas worked when they were intervening in a context um, where they kind of had a chance of being subversive or seeming subversive. And I really just don't think he has that that in him anymore. Uh, he doesn't strike me as uh, very militant. Any, like any genuine kind of militancy he has seems to have been long gone. I'm not exactly sure... Why that is, but uh, I I do think he's kind of a a spent force. And one problem, too, is he's also, like, there's nothing authentic about him anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, his brand was always this ridiculous constructed persona, but Mm -hmm. there was a time when he was able to pose as this uh, outsider. Yeah, well, uh, and I think in Roger and Me, when he's going around, like, his kind of blue-collar persona is is actually perfectly, you know, believable mm -hmm. and plausible, which is what lends that film, like, its voice. Mm -hmm. Now that he's a millionaire filmmaker, it's just, you know, it's it's harder to it's harder to pull that off. But I really don't think that's the issue so much as just uh he's not interesting enough. Like he doesn't have enough Yeah. Uh he doesn't have enough ideas. Of course, I, I think that a big part of this Michael Moore Renaissance has gotta come down to, you know, our efforts here in <laughs> in, in repopularizing. And yet uh, Michael do we Moore. get a thank you card? We from we've him. really single handedly launched our own slacker uprising right here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Slacker Uprising did end with a title card that said that the tour witnessed the birth of a new political generation. And, you know, here, and here and here, here it sits. And I just want to say that since we are the Internet's leading Michael Moore podcast, uh, Michael, if you're listening, and I'm sure you are, uh, if you want to fly us out to see your Broadway show mm-hmm. uh, and, and review it. Uh, yeah, we we'd love to. If you ask nicely, we might even interview you for like <laughs> five minutes. We can we'll pencil yeah. you in. So enough about Michael. Uh, let's move on to the movie that we watched tonight. Yeah. So what did we watch? We watched Elia Kazan's 1957 classic, A Face in the Crowd, a movie that I started seeing brought up a lot in the days immediately leading to and following Donald Trump's election. There were a lot of sort of clickbait headlines being like, you know, here's the movie that predicted Donald Trump. And uh, watching it tonight, I saw this movie I think when I was in first year university and had mostly forgotten it and watching it again tonight, um, you know, it's, what can I say? It's pretty prescient. Look out for him. He's mean. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Andy Griffith, another sensational newcomer from Ilya Kazan, who brought you Marlon Brando and James Dean and Carol Baker. Go be a Loved by millions, an idol of the people. Bye! Bye, Lucy! So long, Luther. You're right to me now. I'll be thinking of you, good people. Boy, I'm glad to shake that dump. I'm not just an entertainer. I'm an influence, a wielder of opinion, 
A force. A force. Oh, if they ever heard the way that psycho really talks. They're mine. I own them. They think like I do. But they're even more stupid than I am. <laughs> so I gotta think for them. One of the greatest characterizations ever put on the screen in the whole history of motion pictures. Maybe I'm just a country boy. <laughs> but if the president tries to stop me, I'll flood the White House with millions of telegrams. <laughs> There are certainly some parallels to Trump, although, I mean, we didn't get around to actually reading these any of these takes, but they, they sound... I think the movie speaks for itself. It sounds a little... Yeah, I mean, the, that take sounds a little, um, a little clickbaity to me, but, uh, no, it's a, it's a, it's a really fine movie, which I hadn't heard about before Will introduced me to it, but, uh, so, I mean, it's about a guy who is kind of discovered by a local radio host, uh, who has a show, I guess it's called A Face in the Crowd, or mm-hmm. Faces in the Crowd, in um in arkansas she stumbles on him in uh the local jail he's a drifter who's been picked up for disorderly conduct and she pulls the microphone on him and he uh you know he's got a natural inborn talent for for talk Mm -hmm. his name is lonesome Rhodes, and he's played by america's dad andy griffith Mm -hmm. uh from matlock (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know growing up i didn't realize that matlock was a real show i just thought it was a simpsons joke i suppose i'll be getting home too at least I got Matlock to keep me company. Nope! He's done in five minutes! He is step on it. Oh no, it was it was a real show. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, you know, the Andy Griffith show is to this day, uh, I think still one of the most beloved, like, family sitcoms of all time. Right. Elliot Kazan, somebody as a filmmaker who's you know, really known as an actor's director. He was the one who gave the breakout roles to Marlon Brando in A Streetcar Named Desire and James Dean in East of Eden. And knowing Andy Griffith mostly as this kind of like cuddly figure, I mean, he really is unbelievable in this movie. Just Mm. this like incredibly charismatic over the top yeah it's a it's a really energetic film um with a with a kind of frantic energy to it um and so basically he's discovered by this radio host and uh you know he gets popular on local radio and um you know before too long he's you know he's got kind of a local fan base he intervenes in local politics to kind of satirize a a local mayoral candidate and kind of humiliate them out of the election so, you know, the, the big wigs in New York start to realize that, you know, this guy is a commodity worth purchasing. So he gets, you know, hired by an ad agency that's selling some, you know, useless sugar pill to people or something. And uh, he eventually becomes kind of briefly the biggest celebrity in America. And, you know, I guess the arc of the film really shows, I guess, in a way, his moral decline, but all, re- really just hit the way that he's kind of subsumed by the whole kind of apparatus of culture and politics and advertising and yeah. maybe at this point i just want to say that i would actually encourage people to go watch the movie it's really good because you should it, just watch because it because it's, it's worth watching and like we're going to get into spoiler territory yeah, yeah. and i would hate for people to you know so so it's spoiled for them. so for those of you that that have all of sunday afternoon as kind of michael and real michael and us hours <laughs> uh this is the part where you're you're gonna put the podcast on pause. You're gonna go watch a two hour movie, right. and go, then you're gonna go to come your back. local video store, get your VHS copy right. uh, of a Face in the Crowd. Come home, put it in your in your VCR. Well, put, first, put it in your rewind machine that's shaped like a car. Um, <laughs> just just to make sure, because you know they tell you on the stickers, you know, to be kind and rewind. But uh, in today's uh, rough and tumble world, the uh, people don't always follow those instructions. Uh, first of all about Andy Griffith's performance. One more thing I'll say about it is, I mean, it, it takes a really great performance to actually convince you of the idea that this this guy could be the most popular personality in America. Yeah. You know, you see Lonesome Roads talking on the radio, and I don't know, it, it reminded me of certain radio personalities who have actually become really popular, where they have a certain inborn charisma and i guess more importantly an ability to talk endlessly about anything Mm. off the top of their heads you know howard stern has it you know god love him rush limbaugh has it alex jones alex jones has it i mean you know there is a certain art and craft to just being able to talk and keep people riveted yeah and i mean he definitely 
you know, I, I think a big part of his early success, and I think this is very important to what the film is doing and what it's saying, is you know he kind of uh, he kind of succeeds by you know deconstructing the artifice that he's situated in, like sort of in a theatrical way. So one of his early ad gigs, when he's kind of still you know a local man is for this mattress company. And he starts like making fun of the mattress and the mattress company, like Viceroy or whatever. Mm. It's kind of like that scene in, is it Wayne's World 1 or 2, where uh, like where they're they're making fun of like Noah's Arcade. Yeah, actually what it, what it reminded me of was David Letterman used to have this long running thing on his show where uh, after General Electric bought NBC, you know, he hated General Electric. And so he did one bit where he was like, well, they bought NBC. They're part of the NBC family. Why don't we go to the head office and present them with a fruit basket as a, a gesture of goodwill? And of course, the bit is he comes with a camera crew to the GE head office and like he gets thrown out by security just for presenting a fruit basket. Like, mm. like audiences, I guess, are really loyal to a host that's kind of like getting away with something. Yeah. I heard Norm MacDonald describe David Letterman or the experience of being a guest on Letterman's show as what you've got to understand is the audience is in on the joke. Dave's in on the joke. The band's in on the joke mm. and you're the joke. Right. Huh. Like, like people like to think they're, that they're part of this thing that the host is getting away with. Yeah. And that was part of Trump's appeal, wasn't mm. it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we'll, we'll have to, we'll have to do a whole like, this movie in relation to Trump uh, discussion a bit. But I think, though, part of part of his success in this movie is that, you know, things like advertising, right, they, they rely on these myths that are so transparent as soon as you kind of prick them, mm-hmm. you know? Like, the, the sheer absurdity of just, like, this, you know, mattress company making these grandiose claims about itself and some local mattress baron being like, you know, I'm a patriot and I'm a family man and that's why I make mattresses. You know, you prick that just ever so slightly and people kind of see the absurdity of it. And uh, and what's funny is that when he, uh, when he trolls the mattress company, people like protest on his behalf well, after they fire him, mm-hmm. but then also their shares go up, like their share value goes up. So the spectacle both kind of creates problems for them, but then it also like increases their profits, mm-hmm. which is, I think, really important in another parallel to Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, back in my little old town, Riddle, the way we elect fellas to office is, we try to figure which fella can best be spared from useful labor. Like uh, you take uh, village halfwit. Now, now in most places he's gonna be put on town relief, but now in Riddle, why as economy measure we make him the dog catcher. But now uh, this sheriff of yours, now of course I don't say nothing again him, but if you got any mutts around you want to get rid of, why don't you just take him over to his place to see if he, he can handle the job. Here, Whitey. Here, Whitey. <laughs> Another way to interpret the film for me is you can look at it as a sort of deconstruction of the myth of the self-made man that's so foundational in American culture. Because you have this guy who is just, you know, a drifter. He's in a jail. He's an absolute nobody. And, you know, he kind of through natural organic charisma and talent kind of like rises up through the, climbs the social ladder very quickly and he moves from kind of, you know, the local south to kind of coastal to being kind of toasted by generals and cabinet ministers and senators in D.C. But you can interpret his rise also as, you know, a big part of the self-made man myth is that, you know, people who succeed are kind of disruptive in some way, that they produce things, that they're, they're, there's innovation. But we see in the film how quickly anything kind of genuinely transgressive or innovative about what he does, in order for it to, to keep its momentum and for him to keep rising, it has to just like gradually absorb all of the tropes and the myths of the very, mm-hmm. of, of the milieu that it's, uh, you know, situated in. So there's a wonderful scene when he's agreed to finally uh, do this campaign for this wretched senator who's just like just a total obvious hack you know, just just an empty suit, probably, you know, industrialist, ex-industrialist U.S. senator or something. And, you know, he's doing uh, in a studio, uh, he's trying to, you know, weaponize his down-home charm. Mm-hmm. And so there's a guy, you know, it's like supposed to be like a, 
you know, like a little local general store, just like Memphis yeah. style or something. He starts a spinoff show called Lonesome Rhodes' Cracker Barrel. Right. Where it's him surrounded by a bunch of like hillbillies. There's a guy s- spitting into a, like a spittoon or whatever. And he's basically kind of like Will Rogers giving mm. a lot of folksy wisdom. Yeah. About- and it's so obviously fake, but then mm. the moment when it just becomes like sheer absurdity is when it's like, oh, uh, who's this? Is that U.S. Senator, like, so-and-so or whatever? And then he comes on and he's like, Senator, uh, what do you think about Social Security? And it's like, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked me that. Well, look who's stopping by to chew the fat with us around the old Cracker Barrel. Senator Worthington Fuller. Hey, hey, howdy, Curly. How's my old bunkmate? <laughs> Fine. It's a real pleasant surprise. Come on Fine. in and meet the boys here. Yeah. Hello, man. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Sit down here on the crack of get you. I wish you'd give me the real cotton-picking truth about how you feel on the subject of more and more and more Social Security. I'm glad you asked me that question, Lonesome. I'd say that people today are obsessed. Huh? I mean, uh, real gone for security. They want protection coddling from the cradle to the grave i say that weakens the moral fiber lonesome roads though never stops having kind of like a baseline of authenticity you know when he starts his tv show they put a straw hat on him and they put a straw in his mouth and it doesn't fit and he immediately like takes the hat off and starts kind of playing with the camera there's a natural sort of spontaneity to him and i don't know maybe that's that's something I could say to lead into talking about his parallels with Trump. Right. I mean, as as sort of disingenuous and fake as Trump is in some ways, there is this kind of like, I don't know if it's authenticity exactly, but there's a live wire quality to Trump. Yeah. And because of that live wire quality, like he attracted this intense loyalty from his audience that, you know, that Lonesome Rhodes did. And also, I mean, I think an ability to make you know, to 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 take the artifice of, of politics and to make the artifice itself like the target of the spectacle, yeah. as opposed to kind of the structure of the spectacle. So we uh, we saw Matt Taibbi speak in Toronto here last night, and, and he had a great point, which is also in his book, Insane Clown President, where he, he had an anecdote from a, a Trump rally he attended where, you know, at one point, Trump turned the crowd on the press, who were all seated in a little box, which rather symbolically was kind of a slightly above it was a raised box above the audience and he said stuff like they've never driven this far for an event and you know all that kind of stuff and so the crowd is hissing and booing at the press and so he's really turning the apparatus in on itself and as taibi pointed out that was a way to solve trump's relatability problem Mm -hmm. because he had nothing in common with these people and he would never talk to any of these Mm -hmm. people but like we're united now against a common enemy yeah in the same way that like lonesome roads connects with the audience by uniting them in this kind of like toothless protest against the mattress company that's right even though you know they're still buying the mattresses right right in fact luke i see you have a copy of uh, matt taibbi's book insane clown president with you i just so happen to have it right here um i think it's while there are obvious parallels between this movie and kind of current events there is a, a fundamental difference between donald trump and lonesome roads in that you know, Trump was actually, this film is a story of um, somebody who's, you know, transgressive in in his like performance style being co-opted. Whereas, Mm -hmm. you know, Trump, um, as much as, you know, he's, insofar as he had any genuine kind of dissenting streak to begin with, that's gone. Um, He's been kind of swallowed up by the uh, machinery of uh, the Beltway, uh, pretty Mm -hmm. obviously. You know, but he's still behaving, you know, with these like late night Twitter rants and stuff, much the same way he was. Just his personal conduct is very similar. Um, and uh, I think, I think, you know, in this movie, Lonesome Roads, he just becomes uh, like all the people that Lonesome Roads becomes a servant to in this movie. It's like it's their norms who Trump is like transgressing against. Um, and there's a really good passage from the Taibbi book. Again, you know, some parallels here with the movie, but I think some distinctions as well. Uh, Taibbi spends a lot of time talking about the way that TV has evolved, the way that news coverage has evolved, and the way it's become a kind of entertainment spectacle, um, and how that's, that helped precipitate the rise of Trump. So, you know, he begins with kind of this insight about, uh, you know, news is increasingly just a business. 
Um, and he says, the presidential campaign fit like a glove into the new demands of the news business. For nearly two years out of every four, some kind of live campaign event was usually happening somewhere. If there were no speeches in places like Iowa or New Hampshire, then there were candidate appearances on TV, Jefferson Jackson dinners, addresses to groups like APAC, straw polls, and 10,000 other ready-made news events. And you could fill the hours between those events with endless pre- and post-election analysis. There are 8,760 hours in a year. During campaign season, you can fill nearly every one of them with campaign stuff if you really put your mind to it. But in the past, all those thousands of hours of coverage have already had to fit into the parameters of TV coverage generally, which, like the campaign bubble, is a world with very particular and strictly policed internal rules, mostly dictated by advertisers. So obvious parallels there. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump's innovation was to recognize what a bad TV show the campaign was. And any program that tried to make stars out of human sedatives like Scott Walker and Lindsey Graham needed new producers and a new script. So here came Trump, bloviating and farting his way through his early campaign stops, saying outrageous things, acting like Hitler one minute and Andrew Dice Clay the next. <laughs> and gee, what a surprise, TV couldn't take its eyes off him. He dominated coverage and was more than happy to fill all 8,760 of those hours. Networks had long since abandoned their public interest mandate and now were finally financially dependent on anyone or anything that could revive their flagging ratings. They gave Trump as many hours as he could manage and he was narcissistic enough to swallow all of them with a smile. This part of Trump's rise really was the media's fault. So, you know, I think that uh, there's, a, there's an obvious parallel in the movie to you know, certainly parts of that passage, which is, you know, at an early meeting that Lonesome Rhodes has with uh, this senator who he's, you know, thinking of propagandizing for, uh, he's explaining to this kind of empty, you know, frumpy old suit, like, you know, you, you know, people need to love you. You like, you know, somebody says this speech that says <clears throat> politics is entering a new stage, the television stage. And he says people want capsule slogans mm -hmm. which i mean was like eerie to watch <laughs> in 1957 I mean, like this is this is like three years before the kennedy nixon debate before a televised tv debate yeah yeah and, and then there's so there's some there's some you know old suit in the room who uh who makes some sanctimonious remark about, you know, we don't need all this. You know, the senator is a respected man. And I still believe there's a difference between your racket and politics. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I think that, uh, I, I think with Trump, like, I mean, because the, the media long, it's not that Trump, you know, commodified, uh, you know, like TV news coverage. It's all, it was already a commodity. What he was able to do was recognize that, you know, it was just kind of a bad commodity, like Taibbi says, and just like make it into better TV. And he was able to do that by just like Lonesome Rhodes does, kind of pricking all of the things about presidential campaigning that are so obviously artificial that people mm -hmm. just buy because mm -hmm. of conventions, because every four years, the same barrage of empty cliches uh the same vacuous appeals to national unity the same hackneyed sound bites about innovation and bringing people together and the energy of the american spirit and all the rest of it all, all you had to do was you know rebel against those things and the gatekeepers that provide them legitimacy and like that's great tv and because the whole thing was already a commodity because in the United States, politics has long been basically just business. Nine out of ten presidential elections have been won by the person that spends the most money. That's on advertising. So elections are big business, and they always have been. You know, uh, I'm not sure how to finish that flourish. Well, I, I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's just interesting. But, like, you think of all the things that were supposed to sink Trump. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, him him say, saying to John McCain, right. oh, I, I, I like the ones who weren't captured. Right. I mean, the fact that, that didn't hit his popularity can only just be the fact that people were, like, took this, like, perverse thrill. And, That's right. And a sainted figure like John McCain being here's, flagged. Here's the thing. Advertisers <laughs> and pollsters and political spin doctors clearly conv have convinced themselves over the past few decades that people... that that like these ideas about like national unity and patriotism or like yeah the 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 greatness of a figure like John McCain or something these people think that uh those are really deeply held 
things that people really like believe well, and people believed it when George W. Bush was saying it because it sounded authentic coming out of George W. Bush. Like he he was well, like kind I, of this Gary some, Cooper type. Some, some people believed it, but uh, but I mean, remember, like almost half the population's not voting. Like people well, yeah. are people are tur- you know, and like I'm sure a lot of the non-voters watch cable news mm-hmm. and like they see it and they see it as just a transparently ridiculous spectacle. And it's yeah, I mean, it's true that you know Trump is obviously more ridiculous than. Uh, George Bush and George Bush was kind of more believable to these like gatekeepers and stuff. But, uh, you know, basically it's been a load of crap for like a Mm -hmm. really long time. And I think that's why when someone comes along and just point, you know, points the finger at it and Mm -hmm. says it's a load of crap, um, it, uh, you know, it resonates. And just like in, uh, in the movie, you know, people, uh, people burn the mattresses, but then they're also buying them. Yeah. You know? But I mean, you can't underestimate the idea too that it was like it, it was Donald Trump saying it. I mean, he had the he had the certain je ne sais quoi to be able to pull it off. I think if Jeb Bush said some of the things that oh yeah, uh, and Donald Trump said, it, it would have sunk in. And and you know, s- some of the most uh, the 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 most just satisfying passages in the in the Taibi book are he just run there's like these chap he has this whole kind of idea of the insane clown car which has all the yeah. Republican candidates. And there are these really satisfying chapters where he just goes through all the, like, all the missteps of the Jeb Bush campaign, how Jeb Bush took, like, two weeks to take, like, five different positions on whether he supported his own brother's invasion of Iraq, you know, all the hilarious Marco Rubio stuff, basically Ben Carson and how him and his supporters were basically, like, Heaven's Gate people, all this, all this funny stuff, but how none of them could out-crazy Trump, because Mm -hmm. they were unwilling they were unwilling to go as far as he was, and also, like, they didn't have the credibility to, to do it. Politics have entered a new stage, the television stage. Instead of long-winded public debates, the people want caps or slogans. Time for a change, the mess in Washington, more bang for a buck, punchlines and glamour. Think you underestimate the respect which people respect? are never... Respect? Did you ever hear of anyone buying any product, beer, hair rinse, tissue, because they respect it? You gotta be loved, man. Loved! This whole country's just like my flock of sheep. Rednecks, crackers, hillbillies, housefrows, shut-ins, pea pickers. Everybody that's got to jump when somebody else blows the whistle. <laughs> They're mine. I own them. They think like I do. <laughs> well, they're even more stupid than I am, so I gotta think for him. I say one thing for him, he's got the courage of his ignorance. Aside from paralleling the rise of Trump, uh, the movie anticipates a certain kind of, I don't know how to, how to call it, like Fox News personality. Yeah. Particularly, I, I mean, Lonesome Road's downfall, it kind of follows a similar path to the downfall of people like Glenn Beck and, you know, possibly now Sean Hannity, although we'll see what happens to him, where, like, they, they keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it until there's some big screw-up, and then all the advertisers abandon them. Right. And so then they have to go. But the, the difference between, you know, Lonesome Roads and Glenn Beck is Glenn Beck never lost popularity. Like, he was at the height of his popularity when he got cancelled, it was the advertisers that pulled out that threatened to make his show unprofitable and threatened to, you know, put a stink on Fox News. Whereas this movie shows this idea that, well, if people get the facts about Lonesome Roads, if they find out that he is actually contemptuous of them and he's actually a bad person, then they'll turn on him. And I'm not quite sure that's true. Yeah, well, the the only part of the movie that I think to me required a willing suspension of disbelief was so after Lonesome Rose is exposed because, uh, you know, the woman who's kind of helped make him, he's completely betrayed her and Mm -hmm. treated her like shit. He thinks he's off the air. And so he's just like being himself as the credits are rolling and she like turns these, the audio back on. So everyone at home can see it. The only bit that was a little contrived to me was when you seeing all these reaction shots of people at home being like, he's not a nice man at all. Yeah. And stuff I like mean, that. it's kind of what you would expect to happen. Mm-hmm. But I mean, in reality, as we've seen people just like rationalize it anyway, mm-hmm. they say, they say, well, he's not talking about me. Right. Uh, when right. he's talking about those other people, are those morons out there? Yeah. I can take chicken fertilizer instead of some caviar. I can make them eat dog food and they'll think it's steak. Sure, I got them like this. You know what the public's like. A cage full of guinea pigs. Good 
Good night, you stupid idiot. <laughs> Good night, you miserable slob. <laughs> there are a lot of trained seals. I toss them a dead fish and they'll flap their flippers. <laughs> but he's a monster. I'm going to call the station up and give him a piece of my mind. Well, thanks, you, Jack. I knew he'd open his big yap once too often and blow my fages. Mr. Macy, I can hardly believe it's the same Lonesome Roads. It is. Only this time his personality finally came through. Although there's one thing that the last the last 15 minutes of the movie gets absolutely perfect. It's Walter Matthau's final monologue to Lonesome Roads, where Lonesome Roads says, I'll be back. And then Matthau says, yeah, you'll be back, but it won't be the same. They'll give you another show, but but it won't quite be as popular and, and not your whole audience won't come back. And then the next guy will come along and your fans are going to start to flock to him and they'll say whatever happened to Lonesome Roads. And it'll be Rhodes. on a smaller format and it won't be in the top 10, maybe not even in the top 30. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens to these guys. Well, it's like Glenn Beck. He was fired at the height of his popularity and then nobody's heard from him since, except when he was on Samantha B. Samantha B. <laughs> yeah. The only people who want to throw li- Glenn Beck a life preserver are liberals. Uh, yeah, and I mean, it's <laughs> what's going to happen to Bill O'Reilly. Like, you know, uh, he was the most popular guy on Fox and all already, like, nobody gives a shit. I await in 2020 the birth of woke Alex Jones yeah. when, when, uh, when, like, perhaps Trump is gone and there's some, like, Frankenstein that's even worse than him, some, like, mutant that's even like crazier than trump and then alex jones becomes part of the resistance that'll be good (laughs) and also you know after trump serves his one term or possibly two terms (laughs) and then the next bad republican president comes along and (laughs) yeah and then trump will say something about uh Oh, you know, pre- President Arab Killer is <laughs> yeah, yeah. is not fit well, for that's, office. That's every president, yeah, but... <laughs> yeah or whatever. And then and then yeah. and then all the the clickbait brigade will be out there with snap. <laughs> even, even woke President Donald Trump, <laughs> the sensible Republican, doesn't think President Arab Killer is fit for office. Uh, Meven Starsh will write a piece about like uh, why I miss President Donald yeah, Trump or whatever. Yeah. Um, But I want to go back to your Fox News parallel because I think it's really interesting. Um, You know, Fox News has this very populist format, but, you know, basically Fox News is a kind of proto-fascist, like... It's a, it's a nascent private sector big brother, and it always has been. That's what the whole Rupert Murdoch empire is about. And, you know, there's really, really amazing uh, scene in this movie where Lonesome Rhodes basically has the revelation that he's, he's not only been convinced by these ad men and these politicians that... Uh, you know, uh, all of this is, is just about controlling people. People need like a benevolent elite and, 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 you know, Lonesome Rhodes feels his power in helping this whole kind of apparatus of con men legitimize itself. Mm -hmm. But not only that, but he finds that like breathtaking. He's really into the idea. And I think it's important to, I, I would like a less heavy handed way to put it, but a lot of the, the tools and kind of the instruments of, mass culture really do have sort of authoritarian roots like particularly so as i understand it the whole concept of public opinion that we understand it now originates from the first world war and it originates from a time when basically the u.s government uh woodrow wilson had campaigned on the slogan uh peace without victory which was a pacifist or like it was a you know an um uh, an isolationist slogan. The United States wasn't going to get involved in the First World War. So Woodrow Wilson's reelected in 1916, and then he decides, wait a minute, I actually do want to enter the war. So all, all the kind of mechanisms of politics having kind of campaigned on, you know, we need, uh, you know, we need to stay out of the war. Wilson has to turn on a dime. So that this was one of the early examples of public opinion being deliberately manipulated by ad men. And the campaign was so successful, you know, kind of using early examples of, um, you know, early opinion polling and things like that, that, uh, you know, the anti-German sentiment that was successfully whipped up in a few months, I mean, the Boston Symphony Orchestra stopped playing Bach. Uh, There are stories of people kicking uh, those, like, schnauzer dogs in the street. There was a stigmatized... People think, like... That in, you know, in the, you know, 2004, like freedom fries and all that shit, like this was like far, far worse. And it all happened in a few months. So, uh, you know, I don't I don't think it's it's probably apocryphal to say this is the first example of this. But, you know, it's an early example of this concept of public opinion and public opinion being understood by 
uh, people as something that could be manipulated, uh, that consent could be manufactured, and that there were kind of, you know, very instrumental processes you could apply to people's opinion. Uh, and, you know, what's that like? It's just like a marketplace. It's where, you know, things are commodities. And uh, the, the, the ad men then started developing polling and market research. And now it's kind of come full circle. And all those things have like seeped back into politics. So there's like no difference between uh, the two. So I guess in thinking about the reason I thought of this was because of your Fox News parallel. It's important to recognize that and this is like yet another interpretation of the film. You know, one of the things I think the film is saying potentially is that all of the mechanisms of, uh, well, I don't know, of, of mass culture, you know, they all have these, they all have these supposedly democratic premises, right? Like we're told the market is this democratic place where as, you know, autonomous consumers, we go and make choices. Uh, democracy is supposed to be the same way. We go and make, uh, you know, choices. But actually... You know, there are these huge kind of structures that are kind of prodding people in one direction or another, and they're very self-interested structures. So for all the kind of pretenses to, you know, being democratic mediums, a lot of these things really are kind of tools of social control. And you see that with something like Fox News. That's the perfect example, Mm. right? It has a very populist format. It makes people shout at the TV. It's kind of participatory in various ways. It's always trying to start these pylons. But like... You know, in whose interest is that shit really operating in, right? Like, probably not the, you know, uh, 65-year-old people on, like, vets on Social Security uh, who are getting riled up by Rush Limbaugh or whatever it is. Like, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I I don't know. I think there are many, you know, I I mean, these are in in some ways sort of meta readings of the film. I'm I'm not sure, you know, the film isn't necessarily, like, setting out to be a a direct... um, you know, indictment of, of, uh, all of these institutions in the way I'm suggesting, but I do think it, it kind of, uh, it kind of infers a lot of those things in the portrait it paints. What I'm going to miss about Bill O'Reilly is his show was really the no spin zone. Like you went in there and like no spin penetrated that zone. Uh, before we go, I think, uh, we would be remiss if, uh, we didn't talk a little bit about Elia Kazan. Yeah. Uh, since I, uh, since I think it's unavoidable. Mm-hmm. Well, so I didn't know about this. You introduced me, uh, I guess about a year ago to a streetcar named Desire, which is a wonderful film. And uh, I didn't, you know, I just kind of had uh, Elliot Kazan bookmarked in my head as, you know, just one of these old Hollywood guys that was pretty cool and made good movies. But I hadn't realized that, uh, you know, his politics were bad. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, to, just just to praise his artistry a little more. Yeah. Uh, I, I think he, I, I'm by no means an Elliot Kazan expert, uh, but I know he's mostly known for his work with actors you know watching this movie i was kind of amazed by just the atmosphere of the film the way he evokes that kind of humid hazy southern atmosphere with like you know a fan going in every room and everyone really sweaty and the movie is loaded with just amazing faces like all of these people that it looks like kazan probably just picked off the street who you'd never see in a movie and, you know, A Streetcar Named Desire also has this kind of pungent New Orleans atmosphere to yeah. it. Uh, so, you know, good director, I'd say. Uh, but? But uh, in 1952, uh, everyone already knows this, but it's worth uh, going over again. Uh, in 1952, when he was already an Academy Award winning director, so he was well into his career, uh, he testified before the House Un-American Activities Committee, where he named names of communist associates and uh helped uh, directly lead to some of his former colleagues their careers ending including uh, the playwright clifford odets was one of the people who he ratted on right um and the the stink of that followed him around for the rest of his career luke and i before we did this watched the classic clip of him at the academy awards in 1999 being presented with a lifetime achievement award which was very controversial at the time there were there were protests of it outside the theater many people were encouraged to not clap and it's interesting watching it first of all he's introduced by a visibly nervous martin scorsese and robert de niro de niro wearing his haircut from the adventures of rocky yeah, and that does, doesn't help things <laughs> um but when people applaud him I would say maybe half the audience stands to applaud him. The default response is a pretty hilarious one, which is polite, reserved applause uh, that's seated. Yeah, so Steven Spielberg, we can see sitting and applauding, because Spielberg, you can see it in his face that it's like, 
I don't want to be in the newspaper as being the guy who didn't applaud Kazan. I don't want to make a political statement. Uh, but I also don't want to make a political statement by standing. So I'll sit and applaud. And you'll notice in the clip the people who are standing to applaud have this like defiant look on their face. Like, yeah. like Warren Beatty and yeah. you know, Meryl Streep. It's Street. disappointing to see Warren Beatty. Well, Warren Beatty worked with uh, Eli Kazan. It, like the guy that made yeah. Reds like yeah. applauded for like yeah, it's too a bad, McCarthyist. But, well, but uh, Kazan gave uh, Beatty his big break. But Ed Harris you know, stares daggers at the stage and Nick Nolte, <laughs> uh, the great Nick Nolte also uh, sits on his hands. Mm. And Kazan's speech is really weird because he thanks the Academy for its bravery. I thank you very much. I really like to hear that. And I want to thank the Academy for its courage, generosity, and I want to tell you that I've been a member of the Academy on and off for I don't know how many years. So I'm pleased to say what's best about them. They're damn good to work with. Uh, I also want to thank Marty. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Hiding behind me? Come on here. Where's Marty? You know. I'm tired of having the old uh, separating the artist from the art discussion because it's really stupid and boring. And like, if you can't, if you can't separate the artist from the art, like don't experience art, go back to ethics 101 <laughs> for fuck's sake. But I mean, you can't fully separate the artist from the art because if the artist is worth the, the title of artist, you know, they inform their art. Mm. And one of the things interesting about Elliot Kazan is after after he testified and he became a very divisive figure in Hollywood, he would make these movies where there was always a Kazan surrogate. So on the waterfront, one of his best movies, one of the great Hollywood movies stars Marlon Brando as a, a longshoreman at the docks uh, who has to testify against the corrupt union boss. And because he testifies against the corrupt union boss uh, is ostracized by everyone else in the union. Oh, boy. So, you know, uh, <laughs> can you separate the artist from the art there? Mm -hmm. I don't know. All right, now let's do Woody Allen. Uh, <laughs> let's talk crimes and misdemeanor. Um, <laughs> anyway, I don't think there's really anything else to say about Elliot Kazan after that. Oh, actually, there is one more thing to say. Uh, his, something that funny that happened on, um, I don't know how funny it was, but his granddaughter, Zoe Kazan, who's an actress uh, in her own right, she did some tweet a few weeks ago. Uh, where some somebody tweeted about how most self-proclaimed socialists are just trust fund kids living off their parents. Or that something. was her. Somebody tweeted that, and then oh, right, she right, responded right. Okay, to right. it like, like you know, yeah, right on oh, or you man. know whatever. And then Zoe Kazan was then dragged on Twitter with a bunch of people saying, "Hey, uh, your grandfather ratted out." Oh, I, I think I saw that. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how to feel about that because on the one hand it's funny, but on the other hand, it's, well, it's, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm so sick of the. Uh, speaking as a socialist, I'm yeah. pretty sick of the socialists or trust fund bit. Like, fuck, fuck that. Yeah, fuck you. Yeah. Now watch you know this what? drive. You know, Zoe Kazan. <laughs> so Zoe Kazan uh, sh should denounce her grandfather. <laughs> I'm loving it. It's a big controversial night. The uh, Kazan thing. I saw De Niro backstage. You better get Kazan away from De Niro because you know he hates rats. <laughs> now, well, well, well. At the Oscars, we're here. Anyway, do, do we do we want to end with anything else? I mean, are there, is there anything that's grinding your gears? Who do you hate? <laughs> Well, I think uh, you know we usually end by talking about some of the stuff that uh, you know we have kind of in the in the pipeline. I mean, we've got some more CanCon coming up, right? Yeah, yeah, we're gonna do that uh, on the heels of the wildly successful Rob Ford episode. It was a success to steam, uh, <laughs> if not if not in numbers. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's right. Um, yeah, it was it was a, it was a critical favorite for sure. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's not all about the ratings, folks. If anything, that's what this movie teaches us. Uh, but uh, we've also got you know this long anticipated Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, which we're going to try to watch yeah. at some point. Uh, we'd like to do Aaron Sorkin's The American President, a little bit uh, scooped by uh, Chapo this week. Our rival podcast. Yeah, rival podcast, uh, Chapo Trap House. Yeah. Uh, 
were rapidly gaining on them in the charts, of course. But like I said, folks, not all about the ratings. So, uh, so Luke, did watching Lonesome Roads, <laughs> did you look at that and you're like, this This is like, I identify with this as somebody who has risen in as a left Twitter superstar. My rise is, is comparable to Lonesome Roads. <laughs> You just say yes. In the, yes. In the, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, obviously, I mean, I didn't even feel like I needed to say yes. The parallels are so obvious. Just like Lonesome Roads, I went from being a drifter to having 18,000 Twitter followers, you know, just, 18, just like that. 18,000 big ones. Yeah, and uh, and overnight, the bigwigs in New York were like, we can't wait to publish this socialist. <laughs> in Current Affairs magazine. <laughs> yeah, in uh, in in uh, in. Jacqueline Magazine, a, a magazine whose icon is a is a radical Haitian revolutionary. Yeah. Uh, so yes, it was just it's just like this is the point when I would like leave the recording on a little longer <laughs> so that you can say these fucking these listeners these rubes these I, rubes I, I yeah. got their balls on the palm of my hands and I, <laughs> doesn't he actually say something like something that along in the movie? those lines yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I won't tell the listeners what you say off mic. Will has really let <laughs> Will has really let the Michael and us fandom go to his head. Uh, always getting recognized and all the rest of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, okay, but if I can just be serious, like I'm actually being serious for 20 seconds now. I've said this before, but we really do enjoy uh, the tweets that we get um, and uh, and you know the emails and stuff. So uh, you know, keep stay in touch, Michael and us nation. If there's anything that you want to see us do. We're open to suggestions. Yeah, um, we probably won't do it. We, but, I know. mean, we probably won't do it because, as we learned from the movie, the people need an enlightened. Uh, elite. <laughs> yeah. now I'm not being serious. I I can only sustain earnestness serious. for like a few seconds, I, I and actually, then I, I lapse, actually unironically believe I that. lapse back into irony. Yeah. Um. Anyways, uh, this was a fun one, and uh, we'll see you guys soon. Now watch this drive. Right now, Lonesome is merely popular. Oh, very popular. But Lonesome Roads could be made into an influence, a wielder of opinion, an institution positively sacred to his country, like the Washington Monument. I suspect your idealistic young lady disagrees with me. But my study of history has convinced me that in every strong and healthy society from the Egyptians on, the mass had to be guided with a strong hand by a responsible elite. Listen, I'm not through yet. You know what's gonna happen to me? Suppose I tell you exactly what's gonna happen to you. You're gonna be back in television. Only it won't be quite the same as it was before. There'll be a reasonable cooling off period, and then somebody will say, why don't we try them again in an inexpensive format? People's memories aren't too long. And you know, in a way, he'll be right. Some of the people forget, and some of them won't. Oh, you'll have a show. Maybe not the best hour in the top 10, maybe not even in the top 35. But you'll have a show. Just won't be quite the same as it was before. Then a couple of new fellas will come along, and pretty soon a lot of your fans will be flocking around them. And then one day somebody will ask, whatever happened to, uh, what's his name? You know, the one who was so big. The number one fella a couple of years ago. He was famous. How can we forget a name like that? Oh, by the way, have you seen uh, Barry Mills? I think he's the greatest thing since Will Rogers.